Hello and welcome to The Path, the podcast from LifestyleRx. My name is Dan and joining us once again today is Dr. Byrne. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Perfect. So today's episode is all about nutrition. So we'll dive right in and um, we'll try and discuss as much as we can about nutrition and how it relates to type 2 diabetes. So um, first thing to go over with, uh, I guess, is um, what are the key principles of nutrition that we talk about when we're improving metabolic health and trying to reverse type 2 diabetes? Yeah, so we all obviously picked a big topic for today and going to try to simplify it. Um, when we look at nutrition in type two diabetes, uh, and especially kind of around reversal type two diabetes, there, there are some really key principles. And so, um, what, what, what we try to advocate is more of a principle based approach rather than a rigid diet or very rigid approach. So the first thing we look at from a principle standpoint is, um, Given the fact that type 2 diabetes is, uh, is essentially an imbalance between your body's ability to respond to insulin and produce insulin, um, what we want to do is we want to limit, reduce, or eliminate foods that, that require a big insulin response. And so if we think about this for a second, it helps to sometimes think, you know, how much, how much glucose is circulating when your body is, you know, just, just, just at rest, kind of normal normal fasting glucose and the fact that that's that one teaspoon right so there's only a teaspoon of glucose circulating in your body so if you eat foods that have a lot of carbohydrate that gets broken down quickly so these fast carbohydrates um, they're going to require a lot of insulin in order to maintain that normal glucose and we always use kind of the example of a bowl of basmati rice that's you know seven seven teaspoons of glucose that you're going to absorb within within two hours yeah you're gonna have to release some insulin in order to store that so um, given that we're having challenges in type two diabetes of maintaining normal sugar and releasing enough insulin to do that, if we actually can change our meals such that we eliminate or reduce those foods that require that insulin. So those fast carbohydrates in practice, that's the white stuff. It's sugar, it's flour, it's the starchy, uh, the starchy, uh, compounds. Um, so that's the first thing. And the second thing that's related is, and, and very closely related, because a lot of the foods that have these refined carbohydrates are ultra-processed foods. And so avoiding the ultra-processed foods makes a ton of sense because um, these foods usually have a lot of carbohydrate that requires an insulin response. So, um, But they also, because they're manufactured foods, right, they're, they're foods that are, they're not whole foods, they're not kind of within the cells which mm -hmm. they grew, they're, they're kind of jam together in a factory, um, they actually get absorbed super quickly and they don't generate a satiation response. And so you eat a thousand calories, but your brain in, you know, essentially registers 600 calories. And so you're still hungry. Um, and so we tend to overeat with ultra processed foods and, and that's, you know, uh, drives that energy overload state that is underlying, uh, the development of insulin resistance. So, when you come to kind of those first two things, you know, that's kind of the negative, right? You know, avoid mm -hmm. this, avoid that. The positive side of it is actually just eat whole foods, right? So eat foods that come within the packages that they're grown in, right? So, yeah. um, you know, fruits and vegetables, um, you know, healthy proteins, meats, fish, right? Eggs, uh, dairy. There's lots of whole foods that you can build your diet upon. 
Um, and then we kind of look at it from the standpoint of uh, if we're eating a variety of whole foods, probably the only other things that we really need to think about are protein. Um, and the reason we need to think about protein is, is one, it's the biggest satiation factor, but two, we don't store protein in our bodies. Like our bodies mm -hmm. will store fat, we'll store carbs that we eat, but we don't actually store protein. So we actually do want, want to be sure that we get enough protein every day. Uh, and from a satiation standpoint, we need to make sure we get it every meal. And so mm -hmm. that's something that we have to kind of pay attention to. Um, but there's lots of different ways that you can get enough protein. Um, and then the kind of the final thing in terms of a principle that we look at it ends up being around fiber, right? And again, a satiation factor, but also a gut health factor. Um, and it's just something that, you know, since, you know, the rise of ultra processed foods, the amount of fiber in people's diets has really decreased. So generally, if you start to eat whole foods, you're going to increase your amount of fiber. Um, but we often kind of want to just check that people are kind of getting, you know, 30, uh, 30 plus grams of fiber per day. So from a principle standpoint, you know, you look at those principles, you can, there's a variety of diets that can achieve that. You know, so if you eat a Mediterranean diet, you can do that. You can actually do that eating a low fat diet. You can do that eating a, you know, yeah. a, a low carb diet. Um, we just tend to not frame it from that perspective. And, and we think that the best diet is, is, is the diet that you're gonna follow. Um, and the best way to get there is actually to take what you currently like and currently are doing and make these modifications within the context of, of these principles. Yeah, and then I guess I'm thinking about like the protein and fiber, like what are some easy ways that you want someone could add more protein or add more fiber? Like what are those foods that, that kind of have like a good amount of those two key ingredients. Well, so, so, you know, on, on the protein side, um, obviously if you're somebody that eats meat, um, eating kind of lean portions of meat or fish, or poultry, um, you, you, you can, you can really kind of, it's very visible kind of the amount of protein. And, and so often kind of the amount that you're going to need is kind of the equivalent to the palm of your hand. Right. And so, okay. Uh, if you're a small person, your palm's a little bit smaller. If you're a big person, your palm's a little bit bigger. Yeah. Um, and, and that's kind of easy in the sense, uh, if you're, if you're kind of having, uh, you know, a meat and veggies type of dish, um, foods that we really like, you know, uh, and, and talk about, uh, a, a lot in the program are things like beans, lentils, you know, legumes, chickpeas. Um, these foods are foods that are kind of interesting because they have a bunch of protein in them. They also have a bunch of carbs, but really slow carbs. They can absorb super slowly, mm. uh, and much fiber. And they're a great way to, to kind of add this to, to your mix. Um, things like tofu, if you're vegetarian, become kind of a staple uh, or tempeh or other things like that. Um, you know, little, little hacks that you can do. Hemp hearts are incredibly protein rich and you mm. can sprinkle hemp hearts uh, on salads to, to get a little bit more uh, protein. Um, on the fiber side, you know, um, really kind of, you know, obviously starting with, you know, eat, eat a variety of fruits and veggies. Um, you're going to be in good shape. Those beans, legumes, lentils, chickpeas, if you've added those from a protein standpoint, guess what? You got a ton of fiber with them. So you're probably in pretty good shape there. Um, you know, we, psyllium husk, right? So the, mm -hmm. the active ingredient in Metamucil, it's, it's actually a whole food and you can, you can sprinkle that into, into different things. Uh, those hemp hearts have a little bit of fiber. Uh, chia seeds have a ton of fiber. Um, so lots of different ways that you can get uh, that you can get 
uh, fiber. And part of it is just really looking in, in um, identifying kind of whole foods that you like and, uh, and, and building kind of your, your, your default meals. Cool. Cool. And then when we talk about, you know, eating differently, changing how you eat, how do you actually, what's the best way to incorporate those principles into like your daily habits and like, what are some strategies for actually switching to eating in this more of a healthy, you know, eating plan type system? Yeah. So, I mean, the key here is just start slow. Don't try to change everything at once. Um, because changing everything at once is really hard. You just got to keep track of a whole bunch of things, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, usually what we, you know, as we've talked about previous in the pod- previously in the podcast, our whole uh, mindset here is better, right? It's the better mindset. Not perfect, but better. And so yeah. you just start in and you just start to look at it and you start to say, okay, you know, what are the, what, you know, in, in my meals or kind of the food that I tend to eat, where am I eating those fast carbs? And, and then what can I do to, you know, substitute them? Are there substitutions I can make? Can I decrease the amount of them? Um, can I gradually start to, to make change that way? Um, and same thing with the ultra processed foods, you know, where am I eating them? What's, what's the choice? Is there, is there an, easy alternative to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and that's really the way, and it's just kind of, uh, starting. I, I like to think sometimes in terms of meals, right. And, and if you think of kind of breakfast, lunch, and dinner as kind of your, your, your three meals, um, a lot of us don't need a lot of variety at breakfast. So that's a fairly easy one to fix. So, so you start with, you know, what you're doing now, um, and what are some alternatives that you like, right. So, um, you know, do you, do you eat dairy? Do you like, uh, you know, Greek yogurt and okay, let's start with some Greek yogurt. Some, we can add some nuts to that. We can add some berries to that. We can add some hemp hearts to that. We can add some chia seeds to that. Um, kind of sounds like my breakfast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and then, you know, and then, you know, often for breakfast, people only need one or two kind of, uh, you know, variations lunch a little bit more, variety and then dinner's a, a lot more variety. Um, and so you just start to tackle things that way and, and take kind of things that you enjoy and look at say, and, and kind of say, well, how can I make this a little bit healthier? Right? Like, um, and so th- th- that's really the approach. And then th- when it comes, you know, w- when you, you start getting some traction there and you start seeing that, you know, you, you're, you're making better choices, you know, then you, you can start to you know, just fine tune it and make sure, okay, you know, does each meal actually have the protein that I think it has? Is that kind of appropriate for, for, for me? Does each meal have enough fiber? Yeah. Okay. Awesome. And then, um, whenever you're reading on the internet or listening to things, you hear often about these things called superfoods that supposedly are going to change your life or anything. Um, is there any like particular type of food that's like that, like especially beneficial for metabolic health or type two diabetes or anything that is the opposite and should definitely be avoided. Like what's the story with that? Yeah. So the superfoods, uh, you know, they make really good magazine articles, right? So, <laughs> you know, it's, and, and they keep changing them. And then, and then what the, you know, what they'll do is they'll come out and say that this food isn't, isn't as good as it used to be. <laughs> yeah. So uh, bottom line is, you know, there's really no superfoods, right? Uh, humans, we're omnivores. We're designed like, by by necessity, evolution has designed us to be able to eat a lot of different things. Um, the key is really whole foods, right? And so, 
um, you know, if there is something to avoid, it's, it's the manufactured or ultra processed foods. Um, but in terms of whole foods, the, you know, eating variety, uh, is, is great, you know, uh, and, uh, I wouldn't really pay any attention to these superfood, uh, articles yeah, unless you like the, unless you like the food and, and it's, you know, it's, it's a, a reason to feel good about buying your blueberries for your, your, your breakfast. Then yeah. I, I would kind of leave it there. Um, you know, the ultra processed foods, you know, so we get asked a lot kind of in, in, in groups, well, how, how do you determine kind of between an ultra processed food and, and kind of regular food? Um, so, you know, there's, there's a bunch of different things, right? One, one is when you look at the ingredient label, um, are there any things that you need a chemistry degree to be able to figure <laughs> out if there's some yeah. chemical name that makes no sense? Um, the second is, you know, how many ingredients are there, right? And so... Mm-hmm. Um, Generally, ultra-processed foods have a lot of different ingredients, including those those ones that are you know kind of chemicals that you 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 wouldn't have in your own kitchen. Yeah. Then you kind of look at it and say, like, in in a in a reasonable world, is there any chance I could make this myself? Right. Mm. Like, okay, I might need some expertise. I might need some you know some some kind of equipment. But is there any yeah. any any thought that I could make this myself? Um, and that gives you kind of a clue as well. Um, the other thing is, you know, and I guess we probably have to go back now to our, you know, our, our grandmothers or our great grandmothers, depending how old we are, but is it something that, that, you know, a hundred years ago you would have been able to buy, you know, cause hmm, yeah. hundred years ago, there really wasn't any ultra processed foods. There was processed foods, right? Like, you know, dairy and cheese and things are processed and, yeah. uh, you know, uh, baking has a degree of processing involved. But this, these ultra processed foods really kind of they're they're kind of post war phenomena, post World War II yeah. phenomena, um, and and that's the stuff that you know if you look at the the rise of of, of obesity and weight gain in, in our society, it really correlates quite closely with the the rise of ultra processed foods. Um, you know, one of the stats that we use all the time in the program is is you know fifty percent of the calories that Canadians consume are ultra processed foods. Wow. Gives you, you know, this is this is not a small thing to to address in in your diet, um, yeah. and and you'll find that it, you know, whether you, you know, no matter how careful you are, these things kind of keep creeping in. Mm-hmm. Um, the other comment with ultra processed foods to think about too is is when you eat out, right? So when you're eating yeah. in a restaurant they don't always cook all the things that they're serving you. Right. And so a lot of, a lot of things are actually pre-prepared and, and frozen really are, and stuff. Yeah. 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 There really are a variation of ultra processed foods. So, yeah. um, but you know, before I kind of, <laughs> you know, rain on, on all these good foods that people enjoy, <laughs> um, yeah. I keep coming back to this. Remember we're aiming for better, not perfect. Um, and so, you know, if you, you know, there may be a meal that you like that is, ultra processed or you know going out to a restaurant and you kind of know that this is not great um yeah and you know what i kind of say to people is look you know enjoy if it's something that you like and enjoy then and you want to go do it enjoy it um but be sure it's worth it right and so you know you may go out for i don't know that i i I always use this example of going out for pizza and beer with, uh, with, with friends, right. Um, it may be something that you really enjoy. It gives a a lot of value to, to, to your life to, to go have that evening. You know, that it's not going to be hugely advantageous from, from your diabetes standpoint. 
Um, so the question then it becomes, you know, um, you know, do you, do you just completely stop doing that? Um, can you do that once in a while? And, and I think you can do it once in a while. And I think that when you do it, what you want to be able to do is kind of look yourself in the mirror afterwards and say, that was worth it. I really enjoyed that. Um, yeah. and then not do it every night of the week and, uh, and, and maybe even kind of prepare for that by, you know, being sure that you're really active, uh, and, and kind of have been on, on, on target with, with other things, um, during the week. So, you know, we really don't have to be, be perfect here. Yeah, for sure. So then how do you uh, address these, these common misconceptions that come up about nutrition and metabolic health? Like, uh, you know, I believe that uh, to actually have a fully healthy diet, you have to have these extreme, extreme measures and like do everything perfectly or that certain foods are completely off limits and you have to follow everything exactly how it's written down. Like, how do you balance that? I, I, I come back to the, you know, the fact that we 1.25 million calories per year, kind of on, on average. And when you look at that, it's just kind of astounding. There, there is no single meal or mm-hmm. anything that you eat that's that important in the context of 1.25 million calories. <laughs> so if you take that, if you t- step back from that and you kind of think about it, it's like, boy, if you can build some good habits and some good defaults so, so that the majority of what you're eating is actually really, really good, right? So it follows kind of our, our principles, then there's no one meal that's that important, right? And yeah. you can have, you can have days that where you're 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 really not on target, but but over the course of that year you're going to be on target. Um, so so that's kind of the way I, I tend to, to look at it. It's it's like, you know, because we're you know we're talking about reversing diabetes in the context of changing your lifestyle. So your lifestyle is kind of your forever set of habits. Um, we don't need to be rigid about it, and um, and, and really what we want to do is if we just start to make those better choices, then more of the calories that we're consuming are going to be whole foods. More of them are, are going to be aligned with, with keeping better metabolic health. And we're going to make progression there, you know, because um, if I'm eating better this week than last week and next week, I'm going to eat better because I'm going to keep tweaking things. I'm going to keep being conscious of things. Uh, eventually we land at a place where, you know what? all that 1.25 million calories, you know, a million of them are great. Right. And, um, and, and, and now it's kind of really, you know, these foods don't have that much power over us at that point. Yeah, for sure. That makes a lot of sense. And then, um, uh, what kind of role do genetics play in determining, like, is there a best diet or, um, for like, in terms of metabolic health and stuff and are there like tests or assessments you can do to help people identify like what the best diet for them would be or what the best dietary approach for their individual needs would be? Yeah. So definitely a lot of questions about this and, and people will, um, you know, will, will, uh, you know, find stuff on the internet around genetic tests that you can do or they'll do 23andMe or ancestry.com mm-hmm. or they'll do something where, um, you know, you're, you're told that this gene has, you know, is very important or increases or decreases your risk for diabetes. And so, yeah. um, you know, first of all, there's, there's no single gene that's, that's very important on its own. And, um, and, and really kind of what you want to think about is if you step back and look at it. So, um, you know, the function of all cells, you know, how our cells work, uh, there's information encoded in our genes and, and also something called the epigenome, which I'll, I'll talk about in a second but kind of encoded in our genes that kind of guide how our cells are to work. So the genome is kind of this complete set of genetic instructions encoded in DNA. 
Um, okay. The epigenome is important here because um, there's these chemical modifications to genes that either turn them on or turn them off, can amplify a particular gene, or they can kind of uh, turn down a, a particular gene. Yeah. Um, and the epigenome, so the, you know, the, the, the DNA we inherit from our parents, right? So we're going to get a copy of, of DNA from, from each of our parents. So that's where, where our gene, you know, genome or genetics is from. But the epigenome is these, these, these genes that get turned on or turned off um, really relate to our environment and our behaviors. And so kind of mm-hmm. what we're doing, you know, so if we think about from a lifestyle perspective, you know, what we're doing from a nutrition perspective is going to be important. What we're doing from an exercise perspective, uh, sleep is going to be important. Uh, yeah. Stress will be important. Um, so each of those kind of lifestyle behaviors will have an effect on our, uh, on the epigenome. And so we'll turn off or turn off, turn on or turn off individual genes in individual cells. So it becomes very, very complex. Um, so you step back from it, it's, you know, we can't control the DNA that we get from our parents, right? We, we don't have that ability to edit our genes yet. <laughs> yeah. so we don't have that ability. Um, and so it really comes down to this kind of combination of genes that we have, whether they've been turned on or turned off, and then the environment and behaviors in which we live. And so what we t- do, do is look at it from the perspective of, look, you know, the things that we control are our environment and our behaviors and um, let's work there and let's start by uh, choosing better choice, making better choices um, there that will probably have some impact at the genetic level, but not in terms of changing the gene, but in terms of turning on or turning off particular genes and how things work. Yeah. Um, And then, you know, we see what works and, and, and that's really kind of, you know, the, the approach that, that we have. So. Yeah, it's long and complicated, isn't it sometimes, but yeah, it, uh, it's, um, I guess the moral of the story, like should, if you're a diabetic, get these genetic tests done, get these genetic tests done to learn more or. Yeah, I, I, I pretty rambling answer. So no, I, I don't think that our diabetics need to, to go get genetic tests done. I don't think you're going to learn anything from that. Um, I don't think you're going to learn anything from genetics that's going to guide how you should eat. I don't think you're going to learn anything in genetics in terms of, uh, you know, whether you have a, a predilection for, for uh, you know, weight gain or diabetes. Yeah. Um, it's, I, I think it's wasted energy. I, th- I think, you know, start, start with, you know, uh, what you're doing, right. Start with the behaviors and start working at that level. Um, and then you shape your environment to make those behaviors easier. Uh, you know, the good behaviors easier and the hard behaviors harder. Yeah. I guess the reality is the, the same strategies work no matter what your genetics are. So use them before you go looking at complicated tests or anything. Yeah. And, and you definitely do find that, you know, some people will have bigger responses to certain behavioral change, right? So some people yeah. will really respond to exercise, some people will, but, but by and large, um, you know, the, the reality is that, you know, what we're trying to do is it's, it's not that complicated. It's just hard to do in the context of our lives. And so, yeah. so there, you know, it's like, keep it simple, focus on a few things that you're trying to modify or change and mm-hmm. get better on. Um, as you get better with those, some of those things just become habits. So you don't have to think about them, which allows you to focus on the next thing. Keep yeah. working that process day in, day out, you know, within, well, we see it within 12 weeks. People are really different than they were at the beginning of the 12 week program. Sure. 
you know, a huge change can be made. Um, but after a year, it's even, even more. Um, and, and usually kind of by that point, um, it's very, very sustainable. Yeah. Hey, it's the, the slow and steady, just continuing to make the changes, keeping on with them is what'll make the big deal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So I guess we'll move then to, um, our case study for this week. If you want to introduce it. Yeah. So, um, we're, we're looking at the different, uh, subtypes of type two diabetes. So we've done a couple of them so far. Um, and this case study is one on what we call weight related type two diabetes. And I think it's a pretty good illustration of, um, of that subtype. Okay, cool. We'll play it now. Hi, Brendan Byrne, Medical Director of Lifestyle Rx here. I've got another case study for you. This week, we're going to talk about weight-related type 2 diabetes. So let's jump in. BJ is a 52-year-old woman that presented with type 2 diabetes at age 43. She came to our program on metformin with a hemoglobin A1c of 8.2% and a BMI of 29.4%. And her goals were to reverse type 2 diabetes and also to lower her blood pressure. So remember, all diabetes can be thought of as this balance between the pancreas's ability to produce insulin and the resistance that insulin faces in our body. So pancreatic beta capacity versus insulin resistance will determine the balance of where blood sugar control is. In BJ's case, her pancreatic function was pretty normal, around 85.1%, so essentially normal, but her insulin resistance was pretty high at 2.71%, And despite the metformin that she was on, that had tipped her A1c into pretty poor control at 8.2%. Now remember, insulin resistance is predominantly driven by fat in the liver. From the direct study, we tend to say 15% weight loss is generally required to lose the 400 grams of fat that is causing this problem. But as you'll see in this case, each person can be a little bit different. So this is a case of weight-related insulin resistance type 2 diabetes, or subtype 4. What we see here is moderate to high insulin resistance accompanied by some or minimal pancreatic beta cell compensation. So usually we'll see kind of normal pancreas function or slightly high insulin levels. And depending how the pancreas compensates, we'll either see moderately elevated or high A1Cs. These patients generally present in their late 40s, early 50s, and really what's happening is the weight gain over their adulthood is catching up to them. So the average individual in our society gains about a pound per year from the time they're 18 onwards. And so if you look at it, by the time you're age 50, you've often gained 30 or 40 pounds. This particular subtype is very responsive to weight loss. So just to review, there are five subtypes of type 2 diabetes. The case we're reviewing today is weight-related which makes up about 22% of type 2 diabetes. Age-related makes up 39%, autoimmune 6%, severe insulin deficiency 18%, severe insulin resistance 15%. And we've got case studies on all these subtypes. So BJ began her program and learned the 4 plus 2 diabetes reversal strategy. She took the 12-week course with a core behavior every week, and her goal was to achieve remission of her type 2 diabetes. So let's have a look at BJ's progress. She began the program at BMI of 29.4 and finished at a BMI of 26.8, achieving a weight loss of 8.2%. Her A1C, as we said, was 8.2% at the beginning. At the end, she was at 5.7%, 
and she's not on any medications. So she's largely achieved her goal of achieving remission. Now it needs to be durable over time, but from a blood sugar control perspective, she's there. Let's look at her progress on blood pressure. So her goal was to normalize her blood pressure without medication. So she began the program blood pressure 145 over 84 and finished the program 117 over 70. So she accomplished her goal. She did this by improving certain aspects of her behavior. So if you look at her nutrition score, it was pretty good at a 7, but she finished the program with a nutrition score of 9.5. From exercise, she began at a 3.9, so a lower score, and again finished the program at 8.8. .8. So these core lifestyle behaviors have a huge impact. So the conclusion, with weight-related type 2 diabetes, weight loss has a dramatic effect on blood sugar control by reducing insulin resistance. We normally say that it takes about a 15% weight loss in order to achieve that, but as you can see with this case study, it can sometimes be achieved with less weight loss. Last words I'll give to BJ, and I think the last line is, it's hard to argue with success. Okay, great. That was that was really interesting to see how that, that all worked there. Yeah, and I think this is... Um, you know, when we look at the subtypes, this this is the subtype that has increased the most in in our mm -hmm. society uh, in the in the last you know 30, 30 or forty years. Um, and so, it, you know, what it shows really clearly is losing weight has a huge impact on insulin resistance, and 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 in turn allows for the improvement of 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 hemoglobin A one C. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Okay, it's time for the question of the week. So uh, I know every week we say post your any questions you have um, in the comments wherever you're watching this or on the post in the community, and um, we will we read all of them. We um, will put them on on our list and we'll get to them um, in in each episode. So for this week, the question we've selected is, and um, uh, it's actually a follow up to a previous question we've actually answered before. But um, why has my blood sugar gone up overnight if I didn't eat anything? So we kind of cheated. We already answered this in a previous <laughs> episode, but um, but it is the single most common question we get. So we created a little video on it. So why don't we play the video and absolutely? Uh, and maybe uh, if you're listening to this, just encourage you to go into the community and uh, and watch the video there. Dan will post a, a link yeah. to it in the community for sure. We'll play the video answer now. In this short video, we're going to discuss the Dawn effect a common phenomena for all diabetics. You go to bed and your blood sugars are low. You wake up and they're higher. You ask yourself, why has my blood sugar gone up if I didn't eat anything? This has to be one of the most common questions that people ask during the 4 plus 2 diabetes reversal program. To understand what is happening, we need to review where blood sugar comes from. Of course, when we eat and while we are absorbing carbohydrates, the glucose in our blood comes from food. When that food is all absorbed and we are fasting, it is the liver that produces glucose. When we are at rest, the liver produces about 2 teaspoons of glucose per hour to maintain a normal blood sugar of 5.5 millimoles or less, essentially 1 teaspoon. The rate of glucose production by the liver is controlled by two hormones secreted by the pancreas. Glucagon increases the rate of production and insulin slows things down. So what happens at night? At about 4 or 5 in the morning, your adrenal glands release cortisol. Cortisol is our get-up-and-go hormone. It mobilizes energy for the day by increasing the amount of glucose produced by the liver, 
by increasing glucagon levels. Normally, insulin balances this extra glucagon to be sure that the blood sugars remain in the normal range. But when we get fat in the liver, we get insulin resistance, and the Dawn effect increases. To improve this and to have normal blood sugars in the morning, we need to lose that liver fat, which decreases insulin resistance and decreases the Dawn effect. Resolving the Dawn effect takes time, essentially the time it takes to decrease insulin resistance by losing that liver fat. Usually this takes weeks to months. Of course, if you are stressed, the extra cortisol from stress will increase the Dawn effect. And if you're sleeping poorly, the extra cortisol from lack of sleep also will increase the Dawn effect. Now you know that those higher morning blood sugars are from the Dawn effect. Okay, cool. So, and then the, uh, the thought of the week. Yeah, this one is, is so important. Remission is not a destination, it's a journey, right? And, and I, I have to remind people of that because it's, it's, it's a little bit like the dog that catches up to the bus right now, <laughs> yeah. right? So, so yeah. you know, you're chasing, you're chasing uh, remission and you get there. And the reality is all the things that you did to get there, you got to keep doing. And that's, that's yeah. the nature of lifestyle. And so that's kind of where we just kind of keep, keep coming back to this slow and steady, you know, better, not perfect. Um, and, you know, you've got time, right? And, yeah. and take the time to make the change and, uh, and enjoy the journey. Yeah, definitely. Okay, that's our episode for this week. So thank you all so much for listening. Thank you, uh, Dr. Byrne, for being here, to, as always. And um, like, subscribe, follow us, whatever you do, wherever you're listening. Um, share the podcast with other people who you think would be beneficial for. And ask your questions, and like I said, in the comments or on the post in the community. And we will get uh, go through them every week. So thanks again for listening slash watching, however you, you viewed the podcast. And we'll see you again next week. Thanks. All right, thanks, Dan. Bye-bye.